Have you ever wondered where all of those gloves go that lost their mate? Well, they might have ended up at OXO's headquarters. Karen Schnellbar heads up branding for OXO, and her favorite part of the office is the wall of gloves. There's, I've never counted, but there's probably a couple of hundred up there, each with their own story to tell individually. But when you step back together and they're actually pinned up to the wall so beautifully, it almost feels like an art piece. It's still this visually beautiful statement that just reminds us of our origins and more importantly, of all of the hands out there that we continue to create tools to help and inspire and delight and make life a little bit easier. OXO creates better kitchen tools for all hands. Learn more at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Hey, Proof listeners, Bridget here. Now, before we get started on this week's bonus episode, I've got a favor to ask of you. Proof has been nominated for a Webby Award. And if you haven't heard of them, the Webbies are considered the Oscars of the Internet. I gotta be honest with you, it would be so cool to win one, but we need your help. The Webby's People's Voice Award is voted on by you, our fans. So if you have a second, go vote. We put a link in the show description, and thanks so much. Okay, now on to the show. Well, we hope that you enjoyed the first season of Proof, and we're busy working away on the second season. So very soon, we're going to have a whole new batch of fascinating stories and answers to all of those burning food questions that you didn't even know you had. New episodes are going to drop every Thursday, starting later this spring. Now this week, we have a very special bonus episode from our friends over at The Sporkful. And if you like proof and you're looking for something to listen to while you wait for season two to drop, we should really go check out The Sporkful. The show's tagline is, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And it's so true, because that curiosity about both food and people comes through in every interview and story that they tell. They've covered everything from the fate of a beloved sandwich shop in war-torn Syria to Cincinnati chili. They even have a two-part series on picky eaters. You should go check it out. But today we're sharing an excerpt from one of their recent episodes about the history of American barbecue. Dan Pashman, he's the host over there at The Sporkful, started by speaking with culinary historian Michael Twitty. Tell me about the song that you used to sing with the lemonade. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, lemonade, lemonade, made in the shade, stirred with a spade, cools your teeth and parts your hair, makes you feel good everywhere. And it was called my family The Slave Song. This is culinary historian Michael Twitty. He still remembers the day he asked his grandmother about the name of her lemonade song. Back then, he didn't know what a slave was. So I, was, I must have been very young. I must have been like three or four years old. I had never heard anyone talk about slavery, like a thing, like it's something our family went through or other black families went through. And just, you know, when you get those first glimpses or glimmers of what that meant, it's it's like a, a punch to the gut because now you know your story and your family's story and who you came from isn't like everybody else. Michael Twitty has spent years researching the role that slavery and slaves played in creating the food we eat in America today. But in some ways, his work started even earlier, that day in the kitchen with his grandmother and the lemonade 
and the Slave Song. That's when he first began wondering about the origins of his family and their food. That's what that, that's what that moment was about. It was learning that word, making the lemonade, you get the juice out of the lemons, mix it with the sugar, make a syrup, throw in the lemon shells, they would cool down. And then, you know, it took like four hours. You know, it wasn't quick. You know, I promise you that. But to this day, it's how I make lemonade, with and without the song. Michael's research culminated in his recent book, The Cooking Gene, which won the James Beard Awards this year for Best Writing and Book of the Year. Now, in the food world, the Beard Award for Book of the Year is like the Oscar for Best Picture. That's like the big kahuna. Michael was the first African-American ever to win it. And in The Cooking Gene, he traces many of his family's food traditions and a lot of Southern food all the way back to Africa. He shows why the food in the low country of South Carolina is strikingly similar to the food in Louisiana. He explains where Southern barbecue comes from. And he discovers why his grandmother had a very specific way of eating cornbread. Food is the love letter between the generations, between each other. Food is how we kept our humanity. The Cooking Gene. It tells the story of how enslaved cooks in plantation kitchens created Southern cuisine. But Michael's journey in the book is also personal. He uses historical documents and DNA testing to search for his own roots in West Africa. That's where his ancestors first learned to stew beans, roast meats, and simmer greens. Michael grew up with the modern Americanized versions of those dishes in his mother's and grandmother's kitchens in Washington, D.C. in the 80s. But as he admits in a section of the book I asked him to read, he wasn't always so curious about his family's food heritage. Before I, <laughs> this is triggering. I was like, I remember I read my whole dang book. <laughs> I'm not going, okay, please don't do what you did before. What did you do before? I read the entire book from my, from my audiobook. And so I wasn't sure if you were saying it was triggering the memories from your childhood or triggering no. the experience of reading your, your audiobook. Reading the audiobook and I'm making mistakes <laughs> like every five seconds. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Before I tell you all about my glorious and proud culinary heritage, I have to confess two things about me as a little kid. I hated soul food, and I didn't really like being black. Although my first non-milk food was the venerable collard... See? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Although my first non-milk food was the venerable cornbread mashed in pot liquor the juice from cooking Southern-style greens. My palate and nose were soon tainted by fast food, and I had no need for most of the African-American heritage cooking that surrounded me. I didn't like eating watermelon, and to this day, I confess, I will not eat it in front of white people. And then came chitlins. I did anything and everything to avoid the smell and savor of quote-unquote slave food, and I didn't really understand why people ate that shit. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that that started to change, that you started to feel differently? Uh, Maybe not the first time, but I know there was a trend. And the trend was being in the kitchen with my mother and grandmother and having, not really having, but being given little chores and cooking, which is, you know, basically like a play date for me back then. And once I kind of owned the process and owned the dish, it was a little bit different for me. Michael says he liked to put his own spin on those dishes he was learning from his mother and grandmother. And the more he learned, the more he wanted to know. Not just about the food, but about the history and the people behind it. 
So he dragged his dad to Colonial Williamsburg after seeing a commercial for it on TV. If you're not familiar, Colonial Williamsburg, it's a tourist site made to look like a colonial-era village to show you what life was like back then. They have reenactors who stage battles and demonstrate day-to-day living. Experiences like this made Michael even more curious about the past. In his 20s, he started doing living history demonstrations himself at places like Colonial Williamsburg. He'd put on the clothes of an enslaved person, wool stockings, shirt and vest, kerchief around the neck. And he'd show people what it was like to cook in plantation kitchens. It's cutting the wood. It's getting things harvested from a garden. It's, you know, getting the meat ready, washing it, seasoning it. It's getting the pots cleaned out. It's all the process that you would have had to have gone through to make a meal. I am educating people about what it means to be an enslaved cook. I am not myself becoming, in that moment, an enslaved cook. I do not reenact slavery. I do not call white people master. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. But somebody has to do this work. Why? Because we're going to forget it. You know, people think that books and movies and social media and art will be enough. They're not. It never worked that way. So for me, this is about forestalling the inevitable amnesia. What did you personally learn from doing that work? Um, how, how glad I am to be born in the 20th century. How glad I am to be living in the 21st century. How glad I am to not live five seconds of their life. So Michael didn't want to be his ancestors, but that work did inspire him to keep learning more about them and to honor them. I want to bring life to those black women and men cooks who owned the show from the colonial period to the dawn of the 20th century, who owned those kitchens. In 2011, Michael set out to write his book, The Cooking Gene, because as he says in the introduction, slavery began with food. On plantations, enslaved people did the cooking. And the foods they were brought there to grow were big business. In 1776, 10 of the 12 richest men in America were South Carolina rice planters. One of the things that I learned from the book that I didn't really under—I I don't think I had a full understanding for just how calculating the system of slavery was. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think that we grow up with the idea that, like— these slave traders showed up in West Africa. They rounded up whatever the closest black folks they could find were, <laughs> right. threw them in the bottom of a, bo- of a boat, and then dropped them off on a dock nope. in the south. There was a very well-organized system, and they were picking black folks from specific areas of Africa with specific skills and bringing them to specific places to do specific work. And rice is a perfect example perfect of that. Perfect example. Like, people, people aren't just saying maybe. They're saying, no, bring us Africans who know how to grow rice. You can't just throw rice in the ground. It has to have a system of sluices and dams and freshwater management. It requires expertise. Yes. That the people in the U.S. didn't have. Right. People in Europe especially didn't have. Was there rice in the Americas before any of this? Mm-mm. Right. Nope. So the West Africans who knew how to grow rice were brought to the areas where their expertise was most needed, in the low country of South Carolina and coastal Georgia and Louisiana. And these enslaved people didn't just grow rice, they cooked it. They adjusted African recipes to create new versions with American ingredients. Jollof rice becomes red rice. 
And for folks who don't know, Jollof rice. Right. I'll let you. Jollof rice is the transnational dish of West Africa. It is rice cooked with tomato, onion, and pepper. Sometimes hot pepper, sometimes bell pepper. Sometimes chicken, sometimes seafood. Sometimes none of the above. And then we have red rice in the South, which is uh, also was also called tomato perlu, or some people call it pilau. And in Mexico, so-called arroz mexicana is really the same dish because it was innovated in a space from which people from Senegal came. And this is this this is the early beginnings of jambalaya, gumbo. Oh, all of it, jambalaya, gumbo, etouffee, all of this stuff. Basically comes with the idea you had to have like this uh, rice pilaf. And that's why we see classic dishes like Charleston or Savannah red rice in South Carolina and Georgia. And we see jambalaya and gumbo in New Orleans. Those may be two different places in the U.S., but those foods have their roots in the same place, West Africa, which is also where Michael knew he'd find his roots. After six years of research and writing, he finished The Cooking Gene. But it wasn't until the book was done and about to come out that he was able to get the money together to make the trip to Africa. He had traced as much of his family tree as possible, but he couldn't follow it all the way back across the Atlantic. Slaveholders made a concerted effort to erase any remnants of African identity among the enslaved. For most African Americans today, finding records that go back that far is almost impossible. But through DNA testing and historical documents, Michael was able to identify the tribes that his ancestors were a part of, and he found links to a city in Senegal called Chess. So that's where he went. Tell me about your first trip to Africa. Hmm. It was just surreal. (laughs) It's alienating, it's strange, it's cumbersome. People look at you weird because they don't know what tribe you come from, don't know who your people are. But it's still better than the alternative. It's still better than being the consummate minority. You may be different, but you're with your people. And when it comes to food, it's just like, oh, my God. It was like, you know, when I used to go down south as a child and would see my father would make a big deal out of pointing out to me how people, you know, my grandfather would live and raise the animals and have the garden and everything. All that stuff, you can see that in Senegal, in Ghana and Nigeria. And I mean, at the time that you made that trip, you had been working on this book for years. Mm-hmm. And so much of, I mean, the, the, the book is you tracing your roots back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And now you actually are setting foot there for the first time. Yeah. And scary. I literally felt as if in my brain, in my spirit, something in me was my ancestors using me as a, a vehicle, going, oh, we finally made it back. We finally did it. You definitely have that feeling. You walk into some spaces, and you get these gusts of emotion. I don't have to describe it. Other places, nothing happens to you. Some places you go in, and you just can't stop sobbing. And you don't know why. It's not like, it's, it's just like, I don't know. The first time we went to, like, one of the villages... Each family has its own compound. Husband has a dwelling. Wives, plural, have a dwelling. There are num- There's like spaces where the animals are tied up to the night. There are barns. There are storage, great granaries. And then I walked into one of the, the compound kitchens. And 
next thing I know, it's just like, there it is. I mean, the mortar and pestle, the cooking fire, the cast iron pots, the women like humming and singing songs where they work, the children running around playing. And my throat like started to close up. And all I could like squeak out was I was here. It freaked me out. I was here, not just any place. They took me from here. I I don't know. I get chills right now. I don't know how to describe that to somebody. While he was in Africa, Michael really wanted to learn more about the roots of Southern barbecue. His great-grandfather, Joseph, was an early pit master, born during the Civil War at the tail end of slavery. In The Cooking Gene, Michael goes into barbecue's history in detail, beginning with the word itself, which he says has multiple origins. The one that's the most popular and probably the, the most um, sound is from barbacoa, which is a Spanish corruption of a term from the Carib people who gave their name to the Caribbean. For so these were indigenous people. Indigenous people, yes. The Spanish saw this kind of like wooden framework over which they would smoke or cook certain meats or fish. The problem with that one origin thesis is this. There were no quadrupeds in their food system. In other words, there were no bovines, there were no sheep, there were no pigs, there were no nothing. They didn't have any big animals except for manatees. When's the last time you saw a manatee on a grill made out of wood, <laughs> sticks? It doesn't happen that way. Now, in West Africa, among the Hausa, you have babake, which is one of many words to, to toast, to grill, to build an, ex an extravagant fire. Well, why is it extravagant? Because you're eating meat, something people don't do all the time. So you, know, you have to go to an alaji to get the best barbecue. They call them alajis from Al-Hajj, the, the pilgrimage, right? To make the suya, you know, suya. They call it suya in West Africa. So, you know. That's sort of the, the closest thing, closest yeah. comparison, suya in West Africa to suya, barbecue yeah, in the suya South. Yeah, and DB and Piri Piri. Basically, they're all different little parts of what we might consider the jerk tradition in Jamaica and the barbecuing system in the South. And so, so the way you lay it out, Southern barbecue is kind of a, a fusion food between African influences and Caribbean, and but also using animals that came from Europe. Is that right? Right. European and, animals, native and African cooking methods, African spicing traditions. And made, especially in the early generations, overwhelmingly by enslaved— South African descent, right. yes. Black men. And as I said, one of those black men was Michael's great-grandfather, Joseph. Joseph was famous for his Alabama-style barbecue spare ribs, which were marinated in a top-secret sauce. It's a recipe that was passed down to Michael's grandmother, and now to Michael. Our meat was marinated for 18 hours. Oh, that's some serious stuff. When I was over there and saw them do the suya and dibby and other things, and to see this dude's hack up, like, the go of the sheep, to roast it and put the spices on it to do the roll rub thing, you want to faint. 
because it's that it's that familiar and beautiful and like great. It's like okay, wow. It's never ending the never ending story of the consistency despite all of the suppression. The whole old traditions just keep going. Since Michael's trip to Senegal last year, he's also traveled to Nigeria and to Ghana, where he had an Igbo naming ceremony. Right now, he's in Cameroon. And next year, he's going to Benin and Togo, leading a group of African-American chefs who've never been to Africa. Clearly, Michael's come a long way from that kid who didn't like soul food and didn't really like being black. He remembers thinking back then that it was gross the way his grandmother used cornbread to sop up buttermilk. But now... I still don't really eat it that way. <laughs> but I do know... But, but I, you understand. <laughs> I understand, but I don't even understand this. Like in West Africa, like the act of eating fufu with your right hand or rice. And now, I swear to God, before now more than any other time, if you give me some some sorghum molasses or some syrup and you give me a biscuit and that butter, I sop like nobody's business now. I ain't never seen nobody in England sop, or France, or Ireland. But in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Senegal, I've seen some sopping. <laughs> and that's that. How did the process of researching and writing this book change the way you think about yourself? Everything. First of, first of all, I want to say this. It made me extremely proud to both be African and African-American. I, I, I'm I, I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud of us. And at the same time, you know, I will never allow myself to be challenged ever again on my African identity. Because I know where we came from. I know our names. I know our countries. I know our ethnic groups. I know individual people who can tell me parts of the story that were lost to us over here. I will never look at that map of Africa ever again without being at a point to it and say, that's my home. That's Michael Twitty. His book is The Cooking Gene. That was The Sporkful's Dan Pashman speaking with culinary historian Michael Twitty. And it was just the first part of an incredible episode about the history of barbecue in America. Now, in the second half of that episode, Dan talks to a barbecue pitmaster about a very specific type of barbecue that only exists on the south side of Chicago. Go subscribe to The Sporkful wherever you listen to hear the full episode. It's called A Brief History of American Barbecue. And thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Proof. We're going to be back so soon, right before you know it, with season two. Now, if you aren't subscribed yet, be sure to subscribe because that way you're automatically going to get brand new season two episodes as soon as they're released this spring. Oh, and one more thing. If you have a second, well... Why not vote for Proof for the Webby's People's Voice Award? If you like the show, we would really appreciate your support.